you can avoid many, many giant stresses in your lives. You can build wealth in God's By the time that you're middle age or even ready for retirement, you can literally be millionaires if you manage things correctly. If you don't, it can be a life of great misery. It's a stress that can really destroy your life, destroy your ministry. As we talked last week, our church is so strong at building biblical ministry, biblical teaching, biblical principles, but Satan is always there trying to undermine. So we have to always build up our marriages, build up our, our finances, build up how we raise our children, or Satan will take us out of the ministry side. So that's why we're teaching a series like this. We saw last week that once saved, we're under God's commandment. Money and stuff are great to have as long as they're part of keeping God and his mission as our first priorities. If you try to make money your first priority, the blesser will often take away the blessing and bring you back to him. Today we're going to talk about debt and borrowing, which are most often the case of not following God, not keeping his mission as our first priority. Next week we're going to teach in the morning. We'll teach in this class how God's principles regarding work and then how to get paid well for work. And we're going to include some special sections on ladies, how you can be paid very, very fairly. We'll teach you how to negotiate to do that. Next Sunday evening, and I know next weekend is going to be very busy for all of you guys. We're trying to cram all this in before Easter and then let Brandon launch back into Romans. Next e Sunday evening at 7 o'clock, we'll meet in the main building. We're going to teach on investing and on insurance. Short lesson there. And then we're going to have open time for any questions you have. You can bring your budgets that I hope you all were working on. You can bring any questions you have. Richmond and Andrew, who are both godly men who have followed God's financial principles throughout their life, are going to be there with us to help guide you. God's taken us all through different journeys, so there may be different things that each one of us may be able to help. But we'll be there to answer your questions. So be thinking what those are. Be praying what those are. Be willing to, to come and participate and let us help you any way we can. Okay? Now last week we taught about, about God's overall philosophy and then creating a budget. How many of you worked on budgets this week? A oh, pretty good number. Okay, we talked about the three things you have to determine before you start a budget. What were they? Who can tell me? Does anyone remember? What three things do you have to prioritize? Huh? No, those were Satan attacks. That's true. I must have not taught this very well. I'll give you the first one. Needs. Okay, very cool. <laughs> Needs versus wants versus like to haves. Okay, I have a prize. Who worked on their budget and finished it this week? Did you? You get a Dave Ramsey book. Thank you. We will have rewards for people who do the homework. Okay, here are the principles for today's lesson. We're going to talk about borrowing breaking the bondage of debt, what God says about debt. Principle number one, the wise save while the foolish spend. We give handouts here. For those of you that weren't here last week, I guess pretty inclusive handouts here. And that's not just so I sit here and spoon feed what you already have in your lap. What I, my intention on this is you will have the notes and the verses so that you can use this series as a Bible study anywhere, anytime you want to teach it. You can use it as a refresher anytime you want to teach it. Steal other men's work in God's glory and use it. Thousands of hours go into this kind of stuff. Use it. Especially college kids, you'll find people who will come to something about money and budget that won't, don't want to hear about a normal Bible study. It's, a, it's another tool, another hook that can bring them in. So that's why I'm giving out the handouts and why they're like six pages long. Okay, Proverbs 21.20 says, There's treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. Principle number two, debt equals slavery. 
Proverbs 22, 7, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. I heard groaning. Consider the facts about debt in our society today. 58% of males, 66% of females, and 87% of single moms list debt as the single biggest stress factor in their lives. Think about that. It's one of the major causes for marriages failing, is fights over money. Now Americans carry an average credit card balance of $16,000 per household of those that have credit cards. That's more than two months whole income. And look at this graph. You can see what the net worth is of houses that carry this debt. And look how many of them are down near almost nothing or below zero. The average household has 10 credit cards. The average interest rate ranges from 15.7 to 18% per year. Credit card companies solicit the average American family seven times per year through the mail. Just in the last few weeks, I guess we're blessed. I've already got almost seven. <laughs> right here, I could probably get $50,000 worth of credit card debt if I wanted it. You will be in this position soon when you get married and have a house and show some income for a while. They know who you are. If your credit card balance is $8,000, that's half of what the national average is, and you make the minimum monthly payment at 18% interest, it will take you 25 years and seven months to pay off your debt. You also pay $15,400 in interest charges, almost twice the balance, meaning that $8,000 expense costs you almost $23,000. Almost half of American households have difficulty paying their minimum monthly payment. If you didn't have your credit card payment of $218 a month and instead invested that money in a 12% savings plan, which is the historical average of what you get in the stock market, you could retire in 25 years with $1.3 million. Because of uncontrolled use of debt, personal bankruptcies hit one out of every 100 houses per year. Most subdivisions that are, you live in, our parents live in, we live in, are about 200 houses. So imagine two houses in your subdivision going bankrupt every year. That's normal in America now. The tragedy and why we're teaching this today, Christian households fail financially due to high debt at the same rate as the lost world even though God teaches foolproof debt management principles. And I tell you, many in our churches struggle. Many fall into the traps like we were talking about last week, get down into this mess. We counsel people after people after people who have bought into the lost world's ways and are just dying in debt. So let's learn God's view of taking on debt. Debt is frequently discussed in the Bible, never strictly forbidden. It's also not once encouraged. The Bible's direction to avoid borrowing is, and this goes in your blank, a biblical principle, not a commandment. Remember, biblical principles do not define sin. They're God's attempts to keep us on track and out of trouble. Breaking Bible principles, biblical principles, does not result in punishment. It results in suffering. And oh, do people suffer when they get their finances messed up. It hurts to be kicked out of your house. It hurts to have your car repossessed. It hurts to live like an absolute impoverished person, even though you have a good income because you've got so much debt. Debt, turmoil, is Satan at work trying to slow God's plan down when it affects the church. We saw the verse a few minutes ago, the rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Just a question. Raise your hands. How many of you are in debt of some kind? Okay, that's not too bad. How's it feel? 
Huh? Suffering. Suffering. <laughs> Suffering. Suffering. You get out of college, you're not making much money, and they want how much? Right? The borrower used to be total servant to the lender. Until this century, lenders had almost absolute power over the borrower. If the loan wasn't paid exactly according to the schedule, the borrower had the right to just grab you and your stuff, and if all your stuff didn't add up to whatever the debt was, they could throw you in debtor's prison or all kinds of other things. Now we live in the Laodicean age, people with rights, so it's not quite that bad. <laughs> no Bible verse directs us not to borrow, but borrowing is always described in your Bible as a negative. This is one of the most important points of the entire day. Biblical borrowing is where you borrow and can pay back the money as scheduled and are certain that if necessary, at any time, you could cash out and pay back the debt. The important thing is not debt. It's servanthood. Before you ever take on debt, answer this question or ask yourself this question. Can you at any time cash out, walk away, and be fine and clear? If God says, I have the perfect ministry for you in Malawi, it starts next month. Can you sell everything you have, cash out, pack up, and move? If you can, you're fine. The issue is servanthood. It's, it's who are you as enslaved to, the lost world, or are you a servant of God like we talked about last week? Can you at any time cash out? You can't hardly buy a house without credit, right? But if you put enough down payment down and you stay current on your payments, you're never a servant, are you? You could at almost any time turn, sell it, and move away, right? And by the way, houses are a pretty good investment if you're going to be in them three years or more. What about a new car? You lose 15 to 20% the day you drive it off the lot. Is that a good investment? What about running up your credit cards, going on good vacations to wherever? My boss just went to Cancun last week. Is that a good investment? No. See the difference? Don't become a servant to the lost world. Always be available to God. Now, let's look at the reasons people overborrow. Number one is no self-control. It's easier to borrow than to say no. Furniture, toys, entertainment, eating out. Women under 30 list shopping as their most favorite pastime. Snicker, snicker. The guy said amen. Men, however are responsible for fewer purchases but add to the debt the most because they buy big toys. Cars, motorcycles, fast boats, vacation homes. None of the things are wrong if purchased God's way. Attitude and method are the keys. Purchases are very often from the get-rich-quick, look-good in our society mentality. And it's a lot of lack of self-control, many of these. Turn to 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 6, if you want. I'm going to show you something about these last times that we live in. This is Paul writing about the end of times the last days, the last days of the church before Christ returns. And you can read this list and just go, oh my goodness. As an old fart, I can look at this and say, it didn't used to be this way when I was a kid. It's much worse now. You guys can do it to some extent. I can go back even further. Where this was not acceptable in society, a lot of this. But look at this. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Do we see that now? Boasters, covetous, Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parent, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent. What's that mean? Don't just think of the old lady with her diapers. That's where you see it on TV all the time. It means unable to control their body, 
their wants, their needs. We live in a society today that is more obese, more addicted to drugs, alcohol, and purchasing than ever before. You just go through the list of things, that the, the control that people used to have, it's going away, and you can see it like crazy. Fierce, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, even in the church. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. We want stuff more than we want righteousness. We want stuff more than we want souls. Another reason, lack of trust. We have seen that God knows all our needs and promises to fulfill them, but too often we borrow without even asking God to fix what we need, right? Something breaks and we whip out the credit card. God can supply all kinds of needs without us going into debt, can't he? Do we slow down and ask? You receive not because you ask not. Lack of education. There's a lot of people who buy things in poor ways. We're going to cover a little bit of that as we go into our lessons. They're not spending the time getting smart at buying to get the best deals, especially big ticket items. Another reason, the sophistication of marketing. We live in a world now where, where everything you buy and everything you do, especially if you're using credit cards, is tracked. Have you noticed how you can Google something, Google a product, and then the next time you're on Facebook or the next time you're on almost any site, that thing's popping up at the bottom of the screen? They're getting to the point now where they're starting to, to be able to plan and aim television commercials and internet commercials directly at you based on your history. There's a big fight going in Congress right now about the privacy of, of uh, browsing and browsing history. They desperately want, the companies desperately want access to total use of that and be able to sell it to anyone they want. Comcast, Google, whoever, Fiverr, whatever you've got. Want to be able to sell that to the marketers because the marketers are desperate for it because it's an enormous revenue stream to them to know exactly what you want to buy today target those things to The last thing we're going to talk about is due to covetousness. That is a problem in our times. That is a huge problem in our church. It's one of the hidden sins that nobody likes to talk about. Covetous is a way of life for a huge number of people, even Christians. Our whole capitalistic system is geared to create a desire for products, Right? which in itself does create the strongest economy on earth. But the problem is the marketers are pulling it over on a lot of the consumers and getting them to buy things that they wouldn't normally buy. Especially as television advertising came on in the 1960s and 70s and it's growing in sophistication now, advertising switched from selling what the product did that filled a need in someone's life to showing it as what the experience is, what the lifestyle is, they made it a want. If you watch advertising now, it doesn't tell you this product is best because A, B, C, D, go buy it. It talks about how it's going to make you feel as a person, how your friends are going to look at you, how all this touchy-feely make you want to buy things not based on need but based on pride. Pay attention as you, as you look at advertising in the next few days. Complete switch occurred, and they have absolutely succeeded. Webster's definition of covetousness is, number one, marked by an inordinate desire for wealth or possessions, or for another's possessions. That's the one you most often hear. Or having a craving for possession, like power. Our New Testament has two strong numbers that directly correlate with Webster's two points above. There's two words. Philergos, which means overly fond of silver, money. And pelequinto means to be covetous, that is, to overreach, to get an advantage, to defraud, to make gain, to take advantage of. So as we start this lesson, we see that many 
Like many sins, the sin of covetousness is all about our attitude and not the stuff itself. Desiring things is not a sin. I want to keep saying that because there's a lot of people that say, oh, Christians ought to just live in a monastery and you know, put off everything else except God. Well, the attitude's good, but you don't have to. God loves us. We all have lists of needs, wants, and like-to-haves, don't we? Chris and Sam want a bike like this so they can beat this old fart in a triathlon next year. That's okay to want that, isn't it? Aren't those godly men? That's okay. It isn't going to work. That bike will get them maybe a minute they need four. <laughs> My wife, Anita, thinks she would look ravishing in a car like this. This is her favorite car in the universe. She's a very godly woman. She hardly ever mentions gold-wing Mercedes anymore. <laughs> right? It's okay to have wants, even wishes. These are one and a half million dollars, unfortunately. There are four in, there are four in Kansas City. <laughs> Obtaining good things is not a sin. You have a list of things you'd like to have? That's fine, as long as you don't put them before God. Over-desiring and particularly forcing the acquisition of things that God has not provided you in a biblical way is sin. And we don't talk about this enough in our churches because it's not popular. Our society is geared towards it. Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply what? All your need. According to what? MasterCard Visa, American Express. His riches and glory by Jesus Christ. Let's see what the Bible says about covetous and how it's a sin. The passages we're about to read are known for their direction about fornication, and we almost pound those into our church. But I want you to look at the next word often that's in those same verses. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5, 9, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. It says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet altogether with the fornicators of this world. Okay, there's the one we're used to seeing, but what's the next thing in the list? Or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or extortioner with such a one know not to eat. You see what I see? The sin of covetous is so bad that we're commanded to not even hang out with covetous people. Here's some more similar verses. Remember when God repeats something, he's really trying to pound it in. Ephesians 5.3 says, But fornicators and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not let it be named among you let it not be once named among you. I'm sorry, I can't read today. Colossians 3.5, mortify, in other words, kill, therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There's the key. That's the big picture. We're putting stuff before God and making it our God. It means we're cheating on God. My God shall supply what? That's his job. What are we doing when we're whipping out the credit card and going out and buying a whole bunch of stuff he didn't supply? We're cheating on him. We're taking away his position. The Ten Commandments start off with, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 24 and 5 says, Thou shalt make unto me any graven image, any likeness of anything under, that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that it's in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I am the Lord thy God. I am a jealous God. We serve those debts. We suffer serving those debts. So it issues not the stuff. It comes down to attitude. 
Christ warned in Luke 12, 15, he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not of the abundance of the things which he possessed. This next picture is a picture literally of the car I drove as a 25-year-old. That was my attitude and my philosophy of life. I told you we were hedonists. It's hard to look at these nice old Christians and say, they were awful. Yep. <laughs> this is how many live today. He who dies with the most toys wins. God commands us to put that attitude off. Look at what God says about the lady in church age in Revelation 3.14. It's up here on the board. It says, unto the, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful, the true, and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, thy are neither hot nor cold. I would that they were neither hot, that they were hot or cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. God's going to vomit us out because it says what? I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. In other words, I don't need God. Knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That last list applies to a lot of the people we counsel. All that stuff at the expense of God does not make us happy. Last week we kind of covered some of that, didn't we? The good life versus the fruitful life. How's that good life turn out for most of the people that really overachieve in that area? Evil. Death. Look at some more verses where God lays out his feelings about covetousness. Psalm 10.3 says, For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetousness whom the Lord abhorreth. As Kenny would say, God could not be more clear. You ever heard him say that? God abhors covetousness. We Christians are commanded repeatedly not to be covetous, and to not even keep company with those that are. Yet right here in church, many, many people are. The king of covetousness, King Solomon wrote, the prince that wanteth understanding is also a great oppressor, but he that hateth covetousness shall prolong his days. He even dedicated the book Ecclesiastes to explain his pursuit of happiness outside of seeking God and his will, in his conclusion, after 11 chapters, and he was the king of trying all this stuff. It says, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for it's the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Covetousness is evil. So personal application. If you're a person given over to covetousness, repent. God is not pleased, but he is a God of restoration. If you have an attitude that you must have a big house, repent. Take what God gives you. If you really have an attitude you must have a new car, repent. What's God supplying? And think about it. Does it really matter what the girl at the Starbucks window drive-up thinks about your car? <laughs> think about it. Put it off. Coverage is purchasing. That's the, one of the biggest reasons people go into debt. Let's look at the opposite of covetous. It's contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment means you're happy with what God has given you. Let's look at Paul's example. Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, to both abound and to suffer need. And then the famous verse, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me. Paul grew up a Pharisee's son. That means he was a rich kid, one of the richest kids in all of Jerusalem. He studied under Gamaliel, the Ivy League professor of the Jewish law. But as a missionary for Christ, he was often poor, beaten, persecuted, abused in every way. But what did he tell us? Serve God. Do things for Christ. We kind of talked about 
our, our budget. Anita and I, last week, Anita and I got married. We had two good jobs. We had our first kid, piece of cake, went everywhere, did everything. Leslie was just the perfect baby, lured us into having another one, named Haley. <laughs> Haley had issues that mom had to stay home. She would not eat unless it was from mom. She flunked daycare three times <laughs> in about a week. That cut, our, um, that cut our young married couple income exactly in half. A few years later, I got saved, and we committed our lives to serving the Lord. And with that attitude, it just comes naturally that stuff becomes less important. We scrimped and made do with very little. We literally lived off of Salvation Army clothes and garage sale clothes. We drove cars that were so bad we named them. They were $2,000 hoopties. But amazingly, God always came through with what we needed. We didn't have much, but we learned to be happy. And even more, we learned to be content. Now we're incredibly blessed with two, two gigantic incomes. But we're still content. We live in the same house we bought before we had kids. We buy cars and then drive them literally till they die. They're much nicer cars now than they used to be. But we still, we just drive them until they die. We're happy. We love God, we serve God, and we're content with what we have. I personally don't want a bigger house. It takes more work, it takes more effort, it takes more resources. We're happy. With few exceptions, we don't want more stuff at all. We're done with stuff. We don't need stuff, except for a toy here and there. We don't need anything. That's mostly for the experience and for having fun with friends, not because we want something. Now, I know you guys are young and you don't have much stuff yet. There's basic stuff you need. A house is a good thing. Furniture is nice to have. You know, a few things. But do it God's way. Stuff will not make you happy. Neither will money. If you're unhappy before you have it, you'll be as unhappy or more unhappy after you have it. However, doing it God's way, having money, having stuff, does make life easier. It's a stress that's taken care of. I can say now we don't stress about the light bill coming. We don't stress about even going out to eat now. If we want to go out to eat, we can afford it now. It used to be 35 bucks. Where's that going to come from, right? Now let's look at what's normal in America. This is a, a chart I put together. I actually called Dave Ramsey's group, and they'd never done this and added it all up. But look at the board up here. And these are all approximate figures. You can find different tables, but they're all close. The average American has a median house that costs $205,000. If they put a 20% down payment, that's a high one. There's $164,000 they finance. Their interest payment per year on that's $5,759. Okay? Second mortgage. Many have that because they have credit card debt that they already put a second mortgage on their house to help pay. They're paying interest on that. A car, $20,000 car, the interest payment per year is almost another thousand bucks. Credit card, they're paying $1,500. Student loans, anybody have student loans here? Raise your hands. Oh, we're gonna talk about those in a minute. Student loans, thousand bucks a year. Total interest paid by the average family in America, $10,600 of their income. We gotta have houses, that's fine. Without the house, they're still paying $5,000 in interest for which they get no material good whatsoever. That's normal. There's a lot worse. Half the country's way worse than that. Half our church is way worse than that. Americans average, if you take a, an average family income, it's about $52,000 a year. That means after-tax spendable is $38,900, or $3,200 a month spendable. If $797 of that per month goes to interest, we only get $2,450 to spend on our living, right? Which makes it easier to live, living on $3,200 or $2,400? That's $800 a month. That's $200 a week. Would having an extra $200 a week in your pocket right now make your life a little easier? Huh? Our, mom, 
Average monthly interest now equals a 33% cut in spendable income for the average family. For younger people who make less, it's an even higher percent. This is the same as only making $36,000 gross, not paying interest instead of 52 paying it. You keep hearing the politicians love to yell about it, the news, all that. Have you heard about the middle class squeeze? You know where that squeeze is coming from? Income's still pretty good. It's they don't have any money to spend on the stuff they need because they're paying it in interest. We are choosing to put the squeeze on ourselves, and that's why it's getting harder and harder on middle-class families. And the politicians and finance companies are absolutely eating it up. Why? That's where they get their power, control, and profit. Just like King Solomon said, we are slaves to them. From my counseling experience, the worst forms of debt among them are student loan debt. It's ridiculous what people are doing. Car loans, credit card debt, and then those second mortgages or home equity mortgages that people take out to pay the credit card debt once they max out their credit cards. These four things hold people perpetually in the lower class or lower middle class. Is that where you want to be? You want to be perpetually in the lower class because of your interest payments? Here's how debt has grown in America. Take a look at the graph. It peaked 2008, we had the economic collapse because they had given so much money to people who couldn't pay it back. The whole house of hard cards came tumbling down. That curve's starting back up again. They're doing it all over again. You see all the protests? about the 99% versus the 1%. You've seen that, Bernie up there, all the marches, all of that. People saying we're becoming a rich and poor nation. You heard that? Nod your heads, let me know you're, you're tracking here. Few are telling the truth why this is really occurring. The rich are the few Americans who are staying out of debt and are investing in building wealth. That's God's way. Proverbs 21.20 says there's treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise. Treasure. Proverbs 13.22 says a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. He's got money left over at the end of his life. The poor are those that are sunk in debt and wasting a third or more of their income on interest and investing almost nothing. That's Satan's covetous way. The end of Proverbs 21.20 says, but the, a foolish man spendeth it up. We live in a society, including Christians, that are infected with debt. Much of that's from covetousness. That's proven by the way they take on the debt. It's directly against God's way, and it's harming us and our families and our testimony before lost people. God intended us to be very prosperous as lighthouses for God to show that his way is right. We're failing in doing that. If that same family we just talked about had no interest payments except the house, that $4,841 per year they pay in interest for 35 years adds up to $4,500, $145,000 total money. If they invested that in a retirement account, like their 401k, and got a very safe 8%, which is very achievable, that $4,841 per year would grow to a fantastic, write this number down, $714,876. The rich, the poor. See the difference? We're doing it to ourselves. I can tell you from my life that this principle is absolutely true. My dad was a machinist and never made more than about $12 an hour. My mom worked some kind of odd jobs. They were very smart, good, hardworking people. At the end of my dad's life, when he retired, my mom died kind of early. He had over $600,000 to retire on, which was enough to his retirement very nicely for 20 years. It can be done. 
We didn't starve, but we managed money well, and he stayed out of debt. Anita and I can say it's the same thing. We have never, ever made a car payment. We have never, ever had a credit card bill we couldn't pay off at the end of the month. We have never, ever taken out loans, and it works. We're very, very blessed now. God honors those who do things his way. We didn't give away a third of our income like the average family. If you guys get this right now, you can do very, very, very well. Would you like $700,000 25 years from now? Is it worth it? That's the real question. You can have junk and debt today, or you can be wealthy in a short while. Which do you want? God's way does work, but it takes patience. Christians these days are often too greedy to let it happen in a slower but much more beneficial way. Now, if you're in debt, I pity you. I'm sorry for you. I'll help. Here's the steps to get out of debt. A lot of this is stolen from Dave Ramsey. Ramsey took a lot of what Larry Burkett taught as biblical principles, what people have taught through the ages because it's all over the Bible. Sometimes if you want to learn money, just read the book of Proverbs and mark every single verse that has to do with money. When I did my dissertation, I went through the entire Bible and marked every verse that had to do with money and then categorized them into my lessons. Just Proverbs. If you do just what Proverbs says about money, you'll do great. You'll do awesome. But what Ramsey did is he took those principles and put them into actionable, easy-to-understand steps. He left out the first one because he's kind of secular in what he does on his radio show. Number one, give God his share first. You trust him with your soul, right? It's amazing how many people won't trust him with their money. Oh, I don't have enough money to give to God. The creator of all things, the provider of all things. Hmm, what's not working here? We treat money different. Give God his share first. Even if you don't have any money, even if the bills are piling up, you say, God, I am going to give you your share. I am going to trust in you to make the rest work. I'm going to do it your way. I have seen miracles when people did that. When I was very young starting, you know, I'd say, well, give what you can to church and pay. No way. I was wrong back then. That didn't last long because it didn't work. Give God his share, you will see miracles happen. The only time that God ever challenges you to do what's right and promises to come through is Malachi chapter 3. Read it sometime. Number two, you want to build up an emergency fund. Even if you get a night job, Work weekends, mow yards, babysit, whatever you can do, build up an emergency fund. Why? That way when the car breaks, the house breaks, you have to do something. You don't have to run to the credit card and add to debt. That's just your buffer so you're not making the debt worse every time one of those things happens. Number three, pay off all debt but the house, and you pay them smallest to largest. Now, all the mathematicians of the world want to argue with me, and I really do. Oh, but I've got this debt at 18%, and this one at 12%, and this one at 6 and this one, and this one, this one, this one, this one. And the math does... Uh, 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 uh. And I look at them and say, debt isn't about math. You wouldn't have gotten into this mess if you were doing the math. <laughs> it's about emotion. It's about attitude. It's about, I'm going to kill this and get rid of it forever. You take the smallest one and you kill it, and it feels good, and it gives you momentum for the second one. You take what you were applying to that and apply it to the next one, and you kill that one, and it gives you momentum and energy, so when you get to those bigger ones, you stick to it and don't fall back. This is not a math problem. It's an emotion problem. It's a trust God problem. And some people that make big messes out of their life, it takes a while to clean them up. They need the emotion. They need the support. They need the energy. The next thing you do, you want to put three to six months of living expenses in the bank. 
This is a rainy day fund. To, to ladies, security is an enormous, enormous thing. Guys are risk takers. If you're married, your wife wants you to have a very secure rainy day fund. All of us will get laid off at some time or lose our job or something will happen. A, a Haley will pop into the world. <laughs> By the way, I got laid off at 2 p.m. on Friday, January 11th. I got married at 6 p.m. that next day. Hi, out of work. Hi, father-in-law who I've only met three times in my life. I'm your out-of-work son-in-law. It's funny now. <laughs> he was encouraging. Yeah, you're smart. You'll get a job. No problem. <laughs> Thanks. I don't have a job, though. Okay, next thing you do, invest 15% of your income into Roth IRAs and pre-tax retirement. If you guys start this now, you can be very wealthy by the time you're 55 or 60. Because about every seven years, investments double. And if you can get that stuff doubling in your 20s, count how many seven-year periods there are between here and 65. Start college funding if you're going to have children. Costs about 12,000 bucks a year to go to a state school, right? We'll talk about this a little bit, not counting a lot of the frills. Then the last thing you do is pay off your home early. That yields unbelievable financial freedom. We paid off ours about 12 years ago. We got a 15-year mortgage back when our kids were very young. The mortgage ended as college began. I had no idea what we were going to be making. I didn't know if we were going to be able to save, and we weren't able to save for a lot of those lean years. That 860 bucks we were paying for the house became available for college. It's a good plan. You pay off your house now, it's like, yeehaw! Then you build wealth, invest. Now let's talk about borrowing. Understand that there's two types of borrowing discussed in the Bible, borrowing for your own needs and pledging to pay a debt for someone else who fails to pay it. Scripturally borrowing is when you safely borrow money, control the assets, and could raise the money to pay back the debt if you had to. We talked about this a little while ago. God's minimum standard for borrowing is the wicked borroweth and payeth not again, Psalm 37, 21. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no man anything. Paying not at all or not making payments is breaking a promise and therefore sin. It's also stealing. If you're keeping money that somebody else expected, you stole it from them. Bankruptcy, although Christians can be forced into it by creditors, is not moral. You still owe the money. You made a promise, you took money, you said you're going to pay it. What's God's standard? Pay it. Now, it's all in the deal you made too. If you start to get into trouble, call them up, say I'm in trouble, blah, blah, blah. Can we make a new deal? Can I pay you, you know, half as much this month and I'll get back on track last month. I had a death in my family and I had to buy a $1,000 plane ticket. Make a new deal. The wrong way to borrow is to borrow money but have no way to pay it back if it became necessary to do so because it's, you risk being in bondage. Classic examples, student loans, credit card debt, home equity loans. The next type of debt we'll talk about is surety. Surety is making someone else's debt sure. In other words, you're guaranteeing their debt. And this is usually a deadbeat friend or family member that can't get a loan on their own. Sometimes it's your daughter or your son wanting to buy their first car. That's, that's kind of a different story. Proverbs 17, 18 says, A man void of understanding striketh hands, in other words, shakes hands, and becomes surety in the presence of a friend. Six times Proverbs says, Don't get burned by it. Proverbs eleven fifteen says, He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it, and he that hateth surety ship is sure. 
we have enough trouble running our own finances, don't we? Do we really want to tangle ourselves up with somebody else's? The keys to correct surety. Only sign if you would gladly pay the whole bill anyway. For your kids, you do it, right? Wesley wants a car. If she needed us to co-sign, we could. Keep business business. Do not take an advantage of under the Christian aura. We read Proverbs chapter 1 last week where it said, you know, you put in your money and we'll put in our work and blah, 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 blah. You'll get burned. Watch out. We already covered that. Okay, necessary borrowing for homes. You can't have a reasonable one without it, right? So make a down payment that makes you sure that number, in my mind, is somewhere around 20%, and I know that's a lot. But that's enough that if at any time, if in 2008 happened and God said, I got this perfect missionary job for you in China, you could still go. Homes generally appreciate, but don't count on it. There are down times. Most lenders will lend you up to 40% of your monthly income. Most Christian families cannot make it at over 30%. Also look at your age. I counsel a lot of people in their 40s, sometimes even 50s, that you know, are finally making some money and they want their dream house. And they say, Larry, Larry, is this okay? I want to go out and I want to get this beautiful, beautiful house, but I can only afford it if I get a 30-year mortgage on it. Is that okay? And I look at them and I say, you're 40 years old and you want a 30-year mortgage, how old will you be when that's paid off? Are you planning on working to 70? And oh, by the way, is there any years in there you're planning on saving money for retirement? It's a bad plan, isn't it? You have to look at the situation. People everywhere, what is the exact right number for me to borrow to buy a house? Is it 28%? Is it 30% of my, is it? And the answer is it depends. It depends on all your other obligations. It depends on your family income. If you have a real high family income, you can put 60% in the house and still have enough money for food and basics, right? If you have a starting out of school $20,000 a year job, you can't afford a house at any price, right? So it's all situational, but about 30% is, is where you need to be. Plan to pay it off completely and kill it as soon as you can. Cars, if you haven't noticed already, I'm a, I'm a terrible car nut. But most people buy cars out of, out of pride, out of desire, not because they really need a car. Good cars go 250,000 miles. Let me ask you a question. You've got a Honda Accord, a nice car. But all of a sudden, at 70,000 miles, it needs brakes for $200. It needs a battery for $120. It needs a timing belt for $400. It needs a tune-up. It needs all kinds of other things all of a sudden like that. Is it time to buy a new car? That's getting expensive, isn't it? You have to separate. Is this a bad car that's falling apart? Or are those maintenance things? All of those I listed are standard maintenance things that that car is going to need, and then it'll go another 70,000 miles. No problem. Get wise advice if you're not a car nut. Ask people. Don't just rush out there. I know people, especially ladies. Man, you get two or three things on that list. Ah, my car's unreliable and unsafe and falling apart. I'm going to go buy a brand new car for 400 bucks a month. All it needed is a little bit of love, and it'll go another 150,000 miles. I worked as a professional mechanic part of my way through college. Number two, buy insurance that protects your car. Everybody's like, oh, I'm going to go to this comprehensive only and save money until you crash your car. Not many people have enough money to replace their car. We, we play comprehensive on all our cars. We could replace them. It's dumb. Somebody's going to hit them someday, and I don't want to be out all that money, right? Buy a car that fits your budget, not your ego. Quick question. Would you like to buy cars at a guaranteed 31% discount? And again, the numbers are all over. The average American will buy a $25,000 car, pay 4% interest. At the end, they're going to have wasted about $2,500 on interest, right? If you save that money and put it in a decent return savings account, 
you could have $5,000 that you made on that money while you were saving it, right? It's compounding interest in your favor. That's a $7,000 difference between what you pay for the car and what I do. Is that cool? How do you do it? Just once in your life, you buy a car, you buy a good car. You buy a Honda, a Toyota, a Subaru, something that's a good, good car. You pay it off and you save enough that you can pay cash for the next one. From then on, for the rest of your life, you do not have to make car payments. Just once, you have to suffer and drive the hoopty. But there are great cars out there. My sport youth that you see me drive all around, it's got 230,000 miles and I have no intention of getting rid of it. It's still perfect. I've been to the dealer once for parts for it. I do all the maintenance stuff myself. Once. 230,000 miles. Student loans. We'll cover this real quick. I'm almost out of time. I'm sorry. Student loan facts. There is $1.2 trillion in total U.S. student loan debt. 44.2 million Americans have student loans. One out of six student loans is in default. The average monthly student loan payment for a borrower 20 to 30 years old is $351. 66% of graduates from public colleges had debt of $25,000. 75% of grad students had an average debt of $32,000. 88% of graduates from not-for-profit colleges, watch out for those, many of them are rip-offs, $39,000 debt. Dissatisfaction with student loans. Students who graduate with excessive debt are 10% more likely to say that it caused delays in major life event events such as buying a home, getting married, or having children. They're also 20% more likely to say that their debt influenced their employment plans, causing them to take a different job than they intended or work outside the home and work more. They're much more likely to say that their undergraduate education was not worth the financial cost. I counsel so many people that that is true. Why does the problem exist? Student loans are the result of demand on government by universities, not students. It's based on a false belief in legislators and schools that universities cannot exist without student loan income. That's false, they did for hundreds of years. It's because the universities are all in an arms race with each other and trying to spend and build the best facilities in the world and, and all this. They want more, 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 more. It's a belief by government and universities that tuition can continue to rise as long as student loans are available to cover it. Ouch, they're sticking their spending to you. Student loan policies are set by school needs, not by the student needs and best interest. Student loan terms are set by the legislature, not the financial market. Unlike every other loan in the world, there is no check and balance to assure that the degree somebody's taking out a loan for will result in a likelihood of payback. Worst of all, and this is on you guys, a very false belief by most students that a four-year degree, any four-year degree, will result in financial successful career. That can be very true. Obviously, an MBA, an MD, an engineer, it is completely false for the lower half of jobs out there. Anthropologist, social worker, a lot of teachers, they only make enough to live on. They can't pay that extra 350 bucks a month and ever get ahead. And even having that loan does not get them more pay. College at any cost does not equal financial success. You have to be smart about it just like any other loan you ever take out. Here's some student loan examples. These are totally fictitious but true people. Both people are going to take approximately $25,000 to live out of school, to live independently. Go to the next slide, if you would. Okay, my sister Linda, this is true. She's an Ivy League MD surgeon. She's one of the top breast cancer surgeons in the world. She did take out student loans. I made up all the numbers. I don't have any idea. 
If you said you had a 60,000, which is double the national average debt to become a surgeon, her out-of-school income potential as a resident is about 60K, and your future income potential 100K, the excess that could be paid to debt, she's got a pile of dough, right? Years to pay it off, she could pay it off in a few years, and she did, whatever it was she had. So the huge debt could be paid off easily. Now go to my other sister. She did not take out student loans, but my sister Sharon got a four-year degree at KU in psychology. She's a social worker. She didn't have any debt, but let's look at her potential out-of-school income. It's about 25K a year. Her future income, 28. The excess that could be paid to debt, almost none. So even a small student loan cripples somebody that's in that kind of situation. And yet, if you want to fill out the FAFSA and go sign up, they will give you all the money you want to spend on yourself because it's determined to help the university, not the student. They're sticking it to you guys in a big, big way. It's your fault if you sign up without wisdom. So be wise. Alternatives. Number one, go to JUCO the first two years. We have awesome junior colleges in this city. Awesome. We've got some of the top five junior colleges in the nation here. They're dirt cheap, 1200 bucks a semester. You can work at McDonald's if mom and dad will let you stay at home. There's two years of college paid for by a little part-time job. Anita and I both worked our way through school. She was a cashier at JCPenney's and a waitress at a country club through school to pay her bills. Then when you go, get scholarships, work like crazy, have a job, don't use debt. I went to night school for seven years to get my degree, but I came out with zero debt. We couldn't have paid student loan debt with what happened to us. We couldn't pay anything. Look at who you work for once you get, get started at work. Many, many employers will pay a large percentage of your tuition, especially bigger businesses, hospitals, things like that. Student loans are completely presuming upon God for future income. That is wrong. They are geared to benefit the university, not the student. That is wrong. Avoid them like the plague, and I know many of you are past that stage, but that's why they hurt so bad and last so long. Also, watch out who you marry. There are people who suddenly are in love and engaged, and you have how much debt? It happens. The overall conclusion about debt, and sorry I took a little extra time today, decide who you're going to serve. God or junk. Learn God's heart. Don't accumulate any more debt. Get determined to decisively deal with it. Do not stop until it is completely gone. Go home, and this is something that shocks me to death. You start counseling people, and sometimes it's weeks in where they finally add up all the debt they have and then die of shock. If they had added that up as they were accumulating it, they would have never accumulated it. I have met with people who were sure they had less than 10,000 total debt, wanted me to help them with the budget and all this, and we added it all up, it was over $30,000. It was more than they were making a year. They didn't know. You need to happen to life. Don't let life happen to you. If you let life just happen to you, or you're letting other people determine your success and failure. If you happen to life, you can run your life by God's rules, and almost always they turn out well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your direction. We just pray, Father God, for anyone that's here that's in debt, that they decisively deal with it. They get determined to wipe it out. We pray, Lord, that those aren't stay out and see your blessings of following your word. And I pray, Father, if there's any way that any of us can help, we just pray, Father, that you, you bring them to us and let us help, Lord. 
This is one of the giant stresses in life that tears us down, makes us less effective in ministry and marriage and everything we do. We just pray for your, your help and your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we close, we'll close in worship. But I do want to, to say this. This is about time. If you if you put your budget together, and you probably got that shock that Larry was discussing. Maybe you looked at it and you realized, man, there's some serious deficiencies in the way that I've been handling my money. Um, or I want, to, I want to really move forward in faith. Um, it's time for you to maybe talk to Larry and, and get on his calendar. Okay? Maybe talk to Andrew and get on his calendar. Talk to me. Talk to Eric. People that have, have had experience with money for a while and been doing it God's way. Arnold, um, Arnold's here. He's Arnold as well. As well. Okay, so um, get with people who are elders that you trust, that you know who've done it the right way, and get their help. Okay, it's it's time to do that. Now, here's the deal: you might be deficient in terms of the way you've handled your money, but some of you have been before you can even begin to think about doing God's doing money God's way. You need to, you need to give Him your heart. Right? You're, you're deficient in terms of your spiritual understanding. And maybe even in the context of today's service or service with Sam, you've recognized that there's something the matter with your heart and the way that you've thought about God is not right. And maybe it's time this morning to get something right with Jesus Christ and make a decision. And if that's you, then you need to grab someone that you trust in this room right now and pray. But we're going to close out in worship. And then for those of you who are staying for the meeting, uh, you can go. I believe, where is that going to be at? Do we know what room? Is that going to be next door? Okay, so that's going to be right here. I love you guys. Let's worship. Thank you, Larry.